Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Ellie Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We are on the Friday News Roundup and we have lots of news this week. So we'll be looking at New York City cops that were attacked by illegal aliens and the truckers in Texas and the razor wire controversy and lots, lots more. So stay with us and we'll start with those stories. We'll be back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back, and I'd like to remind everybody, Victor has a website, The Blade of Perseus, and you can find him there, victorhanson.com. You can join us and get on our newsletter for free subscription or get a $5 subscription for a month and $50 for a year. Victor, we've got lots on the agenda, but the first thing is really tragic to watch the New York City cops that were beaten up by illegal aliens, and they were 
They found them, arrested them, Some and them, let yeah. them out. Yes, and they're still looking for others. But why would they look for others if they're just going to let them go? I don't know. I mean, I wrote a column about three weeks ago called A Culture and Collapse. But it is. I mean, what do you have to do to be arrested? And I can answer that rhetorical question. We know that if you came to the United States illegally and you resided illegally and then you created several felonies by resisting arrest and attacking law enforcement, you're not going to be in jail. We do know that if you protest at an abortion clinic peacefully and they deem that you've instructed the ability to go in and out without obstruct, you're going to go to jail. We do know that if you were on the parade ground on January 6th, not in the Capitol, not actually confronting the police, just circulating, you may go to jail. So I don't, I don't really think we have jurisprudence's blind justice. It doesn't exist anymore. That was the contribution of the Obama administration and then accelerated by the Biden-Obama's plural administration. And they really do believe that as leftist, socialist, progress, whatever term woke, that they have a God-given right to achieve their utopian ends by any means necessary. And one of those means is subverting the justice system and applying one set of rules to people and another to another other group of people. And that's what they're doing. But it, it begs this larger question. We have 8 million illegal entries. We're going to have 10 by the time of the election. What is the purpose of all this? Is it, I just, I used to think it's a long-term investment in constituencies that will for a generation support the progressive project given they're getting massive defective defections from blacks, Latinos, of course the white working class. I think it's more immediate. I think they're going to swarm in eight to 10 million people they're going to register in places like California, where it will matter for the down ballot, but other places as well. They'll go into the disability office. They will go in to the welfare office. They will go into the housing office. And just by the fact of asking for a state service, they automatically register you. DMV, motor voter, and they will get a ballot mailed to their address. I think that's the idea. And then when anybody objects, they say, racist racist, xenophobe, and I think that's the attitude. I think they're just terrified about the next election. And um, so... Well, what's the show then of doing things? So I, I know that this border controversy, they're saying, well, we can't do anything without c Congress, and everybody knows that that's bogus. But they're they seem to be trying to suggest to their own voters that they are doing something by doing nothing. I don't, I don't quite understand their actions well, what, right What's now. happening is this, that they know that the law is the law is the law, and it's the same now as it was under Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, after he fought all the legal battles, after he fought all the, de the defections within his own administrative state, and by November of 2019, closed the border, period. And he did that very easily, and those protocols are in place. All he has to do is say no more catch and release, apply for refugee status in Mexico, call up Obrador and say, you know what? Don't let people in on, on your southern border, or we're going to deport people massively and dump them in your country, as Trump did. 
and start working on the new section of the wall. And we'd have no problem. He doesn't need legislation. So that's bogus. So your question is, why is he feigning concern suddenly? It's an election year. And the Republicans have woke up late, but did wake up, and they began busing people to other cities. And they knew the liberal, progressive, left-wing mind. And it's always, I'm going to virtue signal and performance art my superior morality with the condition that I never suffer the consequences of my own ideology. And now they are. So they love illegal aliens. They have 550 jurisdictions that are sanctuary cities, states, counties. And they got their wish. And now they're overrun with people who are here illegally, poor, and with no background checks. They are, they have, they're fentanyl uh, smugglers. They're violent, many of them. Uh, they're defecating in parks. They're leaving bottles of urine on footsteps of uh, nice homes. Um, and they don't know what to do about them. And they're Democrats. So they're telling the black community is saying, you know, we don't get this treatment. Latino community is saying, if you should go down the Rio Grande Valley, look what's happened to our communities. And it's, I pick up the Fresno Bee or one of the websites of the local television, local news. Every single day, it is Hernando Huerta, uh, two suspect murderers, and this is in my own hometown, which you could, everybody when I went to high school did not have a key to their home. And I see every day that there is a hit and run. There is this, there's this, and every single one of them is illegal aliens. And they don't, they don't usually even list the address. They don't know where the address is because they live 40, 50 in places around me where they have Winnebago's and people run out to them. And when you say that, if I were to say that where I work, 200 miles away, they'd say you're a racist. But the people at the Stanford campus who support this, they live in Atherton, they have private security, they live in Woodside, they live in Hillsboro, you name it. And they don't live on the front lines. And when they live on the front lines, they get a different attitude. And now it's going to be a close election in key states. And Joe Biden wants to feign concern. Period. Yeah. Period. It, there's a poll out that has Joe Biden ahead. And I know this is very early, but nonetheless, his feigned concern seems to have bumped him to 50 over uh, Donald Trump's 44 percent. So. I, that's what, I guess why I was asking. I mean, this it seems to work to feign this with most people. I don't think that poll, it's an outline poll. And more importantly, uh, more importantly, the inflation, it's based on the idea that inflation is cooling and there's an expectation that things might get a little better. But he can't change the reality that commodity prices for food, rent, fuels, have new cars, things people really are affected by have gone up 30% since he came in, and it's yeah. not going to change. And now he's going to get, the Federal Reserve will give, the more the Federal Reserve gives big lectures that it's apolitical, the more likely it is to lower interest rates before the election. Yeah. So we know that. We do know that. They were and, talking about that a, a month ago or so, that they were making it really bad right now. But as we move into the summer and fall, they're going to just bring them down. But what I said with the outlier poll, if you go to the Real Clear Politics website, he's 13 points down. 13 points down. Think of that. Yeah. 
And uh, that's, you know, that's things like left wing you go gov. Let me just read you a poll. I'll look it up right now. Here's the daily cost. This is approval, disapproval. I'm not talking about Trump, Biden. Yeah. 35% approval in the daily cost. 38 in Messenger. 44 in UGAB. And look at the disapproval. 54, 56, 55, 57, 58, 57. That's an incumbent. Yeah. And when you look at the uh, head-to-head polls, you can see that almost all of them have Trump ahead. Almost all of them. I'm not saying that's that's means anything because people because Trump will be. People said that you know in 2020, but and they, I, I think a lot of the MAGA supporters have to get prepped for this. Mark Zuckerberg's going to spend more than four four hundred nineteen million dollars as he did in 2020. He's going to send spend a billion dollars, and they're going to absorb the work of the registrars, and they're going to have mail-in drop boxes everywhere. And they're going to mail out ballots. And the rejection rate will be less than 3%, 0.3% in most states. And they're going to blanket. They're going to use their four times the amount of money of the Trump campaign. And they're going to run commercials that he's killing women uh, by denying, even though he was the most liberal of all the Republican candidates. Uh, and he's much more liberal on abortion than Joe Biden used to be when he was old Joe from Scranton, working class Catholic. Supposedly, and we're going to hear that January 6th, January 6th, January 6th, and then we're going to get gavel, little gavel coverage of Latita James, Alvin Bragg, Fannie Willis, Jack Smith. And have you noticed one thing? We don't hear anything about Fannie Willis. I mean, if that was a white DA office and they were prosecuting, say, Barack Obama, and he was a candidate, that would be. I mean, you would have 50 pages of coverage, coverage in every major newspaper about how corrupt this old boy network was. So it's very hard to overcome all that. Yeah, it is. And, and there's no margin of error. And I wrote a column about that. No margin of error. Trump cannot afford to lose his cool. And that's what they want him to do. They, they can't, his campaign is very professional. It's much more professional than last time. And they, they know there's no margin of error, yeah. given what they're up against. Well, given all the troubles of Biden, it's no surprising he referred to Trump as the sitting president. Maybe that was some Freudian slip he wished he was the yeah, sitting president. Yeah, I think president. it's true in a way. He's more of a president as not a president than Biden is as a president. Biden, you know, he was... I keep reiterating, I'm not trying to be ad hominem in a mean way. He's not a nice person. He never was a nice person. He was a plagiarist. He lied in the 1988 campaign. He lied in the 2008. He said that Barack Obama was the first black person that could speak well and who was clean. He's, he was always a rogue. He really was. And now with the dementia, there's no, there's no veneer of normality. It's been scraped away and that putrid wound beneath is Joe Biden. So he gets up there and he starts yelling about MAGA. Donald Trump, you just remember, you know, Donald Trump said that these uh, people who died at Normandy were suckers and they were were, were fools. And that that was an attack on Bo, 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 or whatever his name, Bo. Attack on him? He died of natural causes from a brain tumor. And it was the, he didn't die in combat. 
World War II was 80 years before he died, 75 years. And then he, but he just animated, he just spouts off this stuff. And we'll see. We'll see what the reception is when he goes to East Palestine. What's he going to say? I wanted to come here a year ago, but there was no election. And you people, I've already lost you. I don't like MAGA. You're semi-fascist. You're ultra-MAGA. So I've called you chumps and dregs. And Barack has called you clingers. And Hillary called you deplorables and irredeemables. And I don't know. John McCain said that you were hobbits and crazies. So I'm here. Bye. See ya. That'll be what it is. And didn't the mayor of the city, East Palestine, tell him he shouldn't come or something to that effect? Something to the effect that he honors the presidency. He wasn't going to be personal, but he didn't think that Biden was coming for any other reason but an election year. Yeah. But he's lost the... He's, you can see all of the barometers how he has lost the white working class. Look at the military. The only demographic that is way short. It's not Latinos, it's not blacks, it's not women, it's not gays. It's white working class males are not joining the military. And that's because of the Biden Pentagon and what they do and what they say. And you look at any any poll, he has lost the white working class. He And the so-called white people that are 67% of the population He's got the independent swing voter, maybe, and he's got the bi-coastal elite that have the money. And that's about all. Yeah. And that's the only people he caters to. And that's why he talks about climate change nonstop. He just stopped liquid natural gas exports to Europe, which I thought being ecumenical. And he talks about our allies and Trump's an isolation. You know, John Bolton wrote an op-ed today about how Trump is the isolationist and he's dead. Trump won't. Trump warned them about natural gas. He's tried to ship natural gas to Europe. Biden is cutting off our allies at a time when they have no other source of natural gas. So it, this obsession, it, it's almost a sickness, this hatred yeah. of Trump and his supporters. I, I get back to that Bolton com, uh, op-ed today. It said, well, he said he was tough on Russia. He was. He said, well, all he did was was live to raise sanctions. I said, no, that wasn't all he did, John Bolton. He sent Javelin missiles, and then Obama wouldn't send them. He sent Javelin missiles to them, to, to Ukraine, to stop Russia. He killed 200 Russians. That's pretty risky in Syria. Yeah. The Wagner, what would later became the Wagner Group mercenaries. He got out of an asymmetrical missile deal that people had been begging us to get out of. He, he got out of it. He got rid of the whole idea of reset. And this is, this is at a time when people were accusing him of being, as John, James Clapper, a Russian asset. And he was a fool for the Russians. He was strong. I could go on. All the things he did to Russia. And then Bolton can't explain one central truth. Why did Putin go into Georgia, Osatia, in 2008? Why did he do that? Because the Bush administration was racked by setbacks in Afghanistan and stasis in Iraq and high oil prices that was crushing the economy. And we were headed toward a recession and Russia was flush with cash. And he knew that Bush was in no position to do anything, given his popularity was about 30%. Why did he go in 2022? 
because Joe Biden had said he wouldn't object if it was a minor invasion or that he asked, he, he told everybody um, that Afghanistan was a great logistical success. Putin looked at that. He looked at all these things. And that's why he went. Why did he go in 2014? Because we had appeased him. Who was we, Obama? Just go back to the hot mic in Seoul in March of 2012 when he said, tell to the Russian president, tell Vladimir, give me some space. I'll be flexible in missile defense, i.e. he canceled it. This is my last election. And Putin gave him a year or two and then he invaded. Victor, there's a new film out from the New York Times bestselling author Eric Metaxas comes a riveting new film, Letter to the American Church. The film explores the parallels between the 1930s Nazi Germany and Mao and Stalin regimes and the infiltration of the cultural Marxism in America today. The church's decision to stay out of politics undermines the very message of the gospel and its power to transform human existence. Metaxas issues an urgent call to the church. Stay silent and abandon its mission of proclaiming liberty or stand up to the forces of evil. Join Eric and several leading voices of today as they explain how America and her church are at the precipice of destruction and need to wake up and take action. Don't miss this film, streaming February 8th on Epoch TV, part of the Epoch Times. Visit lettertotheamericanchurch.com for more information. Letter to the American Church, this film is not yet rated. Victor, let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about truckers to the Texas border and American soldiers killed in the Middle East. Stay with us, and we'll be back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Welcome back. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. You can find Victor on X at VD Hanson and on Facebook at Hanson's Morning Cup. Victor, I, I, we've had a lot of truckers, the Canadian truckers a couple of years ago, the Germans truckers shutting down Berlin a few months ago. French farmers have done the same thing in Paris, the main roadways, and now our truckers in Texas trying to support the uh, Texas military or Texas cops on the border when Biden obviously is working against them. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, on those those movements. Are they going to work? I mean, do, what what 
what do they achieve? Well, people hate truckers, the, the bi-coastal elite. They're independent. They're self-employed, the majority. I'm not talking about people who work for a large corporation. But the independent trucker, they cannot stand. He's like the vanishing, they're vanishing species, and they are jacks of, of all trades. They know, they're mechanics, they're business people, they're drivers, they understand weights and loads. And so they're a very independent, rugged group of people, and they don't like to be pushed around, and they are empathetic to people like them that represent American individualism. So when they see something like the government is doing, and they have these huge trucks and the country needs them, they feel they have political leverage so that they start to mass. I don't think that the truckers going to the border, what that's going to work because there's, it, it's just not going to work. It's a long way to go. It's a, it's a huge, long border. But it, it, what's interesting is the hatred they incur for even attempting it. The Canadian Trudeau just freaked out about it. And now he's been slapped down by the Canadian courts. But he hated them. In Europe, they hate them. But as this, this Western project in Europe, the United States, becomes globalist and uniform and orthodox, you really need independent voices that speak out against the globalist idea. And these are one group of people who do. That's why they're despised. Yeah. We make fun of them. Well, let's then turn to the Middle East. And recently we've had three American soldiers killed in, in Jordan at a military base. Uh, Biden's uh, Kirby has said, President and I will not tolerate an attack on our troops. And I was wondering, oh, sorry, that was Lloyd Austin who said that. So I was wondering it, what your thoughts were Iran incidentally has replied back to that and said it's not looking for a war. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like it when they say we don't, we're not going to tolerate. They've tolerated 170 attacks. I'm not asking for a war with Iran, but they are. They're going to get a big, fat, ugly war with Iran. And they're almost ensuring it's going to happen because... When they came in, as Jake Selvin said, the Middle East was quiet. So you tell the Houthis you're no longer terrorists. Here, Hamas, here's millions. Trump did it, not us. We like you. Here, Hezbollah will help you and the Lebanese government against the Israelis on natural gas rights off the coast in the Mediterranean. Hey, Iran, please let us back in the, the Iran deal. Please, please, please. John Kerry, he wants to get back. Oh, Iran, you're losing 80 or $90 billion and you can't supply Hezbollah or Hamas or the Houthis with missiles? We'll come and help you. You can sell all the oil to anybody you want anymore. No problem. Replenish your stocks. Send them around. And we got some hostages. We'll pay you $1.2 billion apiece. How's that? And that's what we did. And I just wish that Biden had spoken about the theocratic anti-Americanism in the same tone and substance as he did the Netanyahu government. That's a, a very, that's a trademark of Biden. He will always uh, speak more highly of existential enemies to his country than he will people that he has a personal dislike of. So you get him on MAGA or Netanyahu, he loses, he get, his eyes freeze up, he he slams the phone down on him. But you get him on Iran, 
or he doesn't, or Hama, he doesn't get that animated at all. And so uh, we've appeased them, and now Hezbollah and Iran are saying to themselves, what is the magic number that we can get away with? Is it 10 strikes on American installations? Hmm, let's try it. Oh, it's 30, 50, 80. Hey, let's try 100. Kill a few Americans, wound 10 or 12. Let's go big time, 140, 150, 160. And then they they killed three, and they've injured over 40. I think they've lost six altogether now, and perhaps 80 or 90 wounded. And they're thinking, okay, we hit kind of a plateau. Let's just pause, say, you know what, we don't want a war. And we'll wait for John Kirby to say the following. One, you, and we know what's coming. One, the United States will respond at a place and time of its choosing. Two, the United States, although condemning, we condemn Iran for supplying weapons to these groups, has no direct evidence of Iranian involvement. Number three, it's not our purpose to have a wider war. And maybe four, our, we will find a proportionate response. At a, you know, and that's just a, a way of saying, hey, you guys, you got a break, and then go ahead. And at some point, Iran is going to do something very stupid. They're going to, the Houthis are going to sink an American warship, or they're going to unleash Hezbollah, or they're going to, an American ship is going to hit a mine, and we're going to have to act. And we didn't, this did not have to happen. All they had to do was say, Donald Trump messed up the Middle East publicly and then privately. Man, as Jake Sullivan said, there's nothing going on in the Middle East. We'll just keep all of the Trump policies and attack him publicly, and we'll get all the credit. And that's all they had to do, and they couldn't do that. No. All right. Well, that, since we're in the Middle East, let's continue with the United Nations Relief Workers Agency for Palestine. Apparently, there's been more than 12... Um, of their workers that actually participated in October 7th by, ed, ed, um, by aiding the Hamas in abductions, munition supplies, attacks, and even murders. And so I was wondering your thoughts on the United Nation workers. And I'm glad that we've suspended payments to that particular agency. But what are your thoughts? I don't know. I mean... So the UN goes into the Middle East and it has this, you know, relief agencies. And who is it going to employ at Gaza? It's going to employ people who are pro Hamas and are connected to Hamas. So if, you know, if we didn't find Hamas people that were involved in the UN and on October 7th, we'd have to invent them because that's who the UN is. Just look at the UN votes against Israel. Just look at the people that do it. And you know what? The Euro Europeans, believe it or not, were quicker to cut off this relief agency than were, we were, the Biden administration. And they did for a while. But it, it introduces a larger question. This is 2024. Can anybody think of one positive thing the United Nations has done? When you have Iran on the Human Rights Commission or North Korea participating in these discussions on equality or freedom, it's just a joke. So we have two choices. We should cut them off, three choices. Just let them do whatever they want and cut them off. Number two, just say, 
we're going to leave. We love you guys. We just don't want to participate with you anymore. We're going to have a group of, I don't know, 10 or 12 allies that are the United Democracies or the United Federated Republics, Japan, I don't know, Australia. I don't think, and we're going to have an alternate group. And then three, ah, you know, it's, you're not worth fighting with. We'll throw you through coins, but get that headquarters the hell out of New York. I know it brings us money and everything, but it's just an eyesore. So take it and take it where your people are. Take it where your source of support is. Go to Lima, Peru. Go to Nairobi. Go to Johannesburg. Go to Beijing. Just get out of here and go with your constituencies. And I think that would be a good thing to do. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, it's like, we uh, didn't we learn anything about the League of Nations? Woodrow Wilson's bankrupt idea that at least the Republicans stopped us from joining. And then what did they do in the 1930s? Every time Mussolini took one of his new cruisers or battleships and he was going down uh, through the Suez Canal to murder people on the Horn of Africa and Ethiopian Somalia, what did they do? They didn't do anything. The British and French fleets could have blown the Italian Navy out of the world. They, the UN didn't do anything. They just said, Mr. Mussolini, would you please not use your Navy to kill innocent people and bring troops to, to destroy these indigenous people? They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything about the Rhineland. They didn't do anything about the Saar Plebis. They didn't do anything. And so they went out of existence. And then what did we do after World War II? We just said, we're going to have to do League of Nations 2.0. And that's what we did. And the only time it's ever worked is during the Korean War when Russia was abstaining or had stormed out because they wanted to admit uh, communist China or they wanted all of their republics to count as individual countries and they were out, and there was no veto, veto in the Security Council, and UN nations supplied some help in Korea. End of story. You know, I, I was reading on this, and I think that Brendan O'Neill would agree with you, but he summed up this UNRAW debacle uh, quite well. He said, in truth, the UNRAW has helped to institutionalize a Palestinian politics of grievance, increase both local and global hatred for Israel, and provided spaces in which Gazan Islamists have been able to indoctrinate new, a new generation with their Jew hate that masquerades as Palestinian liberation. I thought that was a lot of clarity at the end of his article and spiked. I think everybody has to, it's a good point. Everybody has to realize that the United Nations, the WHO, the American universities, the elite especially, they're all bankrupt morally, politically, economically, culturally, socially. They're bankrupt in the sense that they're really a negative force in American life. They indoctrinate young people to hate Jews, to hate Israel, and to become perennial victims. And then they create bogeymen, oppressors, and victimizers. And that's all they, they do it in the international view. And then they do it on the domestic. And I have no problem if that's what they really believe. But they don't really believe that. At least they don't, their actions don't support it. Take Rashid Khalidi. Remember him? He was the professor that got a big endow, a foreign money endowed professorship at Columbia. And he gave a big talk in L.A. right during the 2008 
campaign and he was a big Obama buddy and Obama said praise him to the skies and they taped it and the Los Angeles Times would not release that tape they leak they leaked everything else but not that tape because it would have shown Obama was in bed with I don't mean that literally but a big supporter of Rashid Khalid what he said the other day they they interviewed him and here he is at Columbia saying it's all settlers it's a settler mentality it's a settler mentality. If it's a settler mentality, and he said, this is the United States trying to stay in the Middle East. Think of that statement for a second. I'm Rashid Khalidi, and I'm an immigrant, and I think that the Zionist settlers are doing the work of the United States to keep them in the Middle East, and we want them out. Okay, you want them out. If you want them out so much, why did you go to the heart of darkness in the United States and take a big, fat lucrative professorship at Columbia. Why do you do that? Why does Miss Talib and her family, why did they come over to the United States if they hate it so much? Why did Ilian Omar come over? She said her dad said it was a trashy country. She just the other day said her main allegiances are with Muslims and the Somalis. Why do they do this? Why do they hate this system, but they can't keep away from it? It's like a, an addiction. To them, it's heroin. It's sort of like, oh, I hate it, what it's doing to me, but I just got to have it. And it's the same thing on the DEI. I don't understand that at all. It's Joy Reid, and we'll talk about her again, but, you know, cultural appropriations. Cultural appropriation. And I remember when she got her readout show, she gave a big rant about she was going to wear indigenous hairstyles or African-American hairstyles to show that she was going to recalibrate what it was to be a powerful, black, secure woman. I have no problem with that. I do have a problem when she gets on there and she starts stereotyping people by the race and after the Iowa primary. Do you remember what she said? Yeah. That all these white Christians were overrepresented in the demographic. And she said earlier she was so happy that the number of white people was declining. And so she's so anti-white that she does what? After giving a lecture about how beautiful she's going to be with her own, she wears a hairstyle that is a blonde, straight hairstyle. I have no problem with it. I think that's great. But not when somebody says they basically hate white people and that hair is an indication indication of your revolutionary fides, and if some white liberal put dreadlocks on one day, she would be the first to say cultural appropriation. So what I'm getting at is that the more people abroad and here at home hate the Western pro project and they trash it in the United States, the more they want to be around it, the more they're fixated. And they should, we should remember one last thing. There's no guarantee that this project continues. It, it relies on each generation being a link in a long chain. And the weakest link will break and the whole thing will fall apart. And that's happening because we're raising generation after generation that for 10 to 15 years have been indoctrinated. And they're indoctrinated with the idea they're oppressed and they're victimized. And there's this mythical so-called white group of uh, overdogs that created this horrible country and this terrible constitution, guilty of all these things, and they don't like it. They don't like it so much that what? They want to be a part of it. 
I don't, I just don't get that. These eight to 10 million people that are crossing the borders are told that the United States is a Yankee gringo country that stole their property. Why would you want to come here? Why would you want to come here? It just makes no sense. No, absolutely not. Well, Victor, let's go to a break and then come back and talk a little bit more about some of our leading um, black women since we're on that subject. Stay with us and we'll be back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Welcome back. So, Victor, have you heard about this Harvard's diversity and chief officer? Her name is Sherry Ann Charlson. She's been accused, uh, and I don't know if it's proved, but it's not hard to prove plagiarism, of 40 different instances of plagiarism. I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, first of all, why do we even have this position for her? See, I work at a conservative, it used to be conservative, maybe it still is, Hoover Institution. And there are uh, at least four prominent African-American scholars there, okay? There's Tom Sowell, who I think is the best economist, the most accessible economist, the most common sense economist in the country. And then there was Shelby Steele. He was a absolute brilliant stylist, pro stylist. And he was... Anything you see that's derivative about race and white guilt, it came from Shelby. And we had Condoleezza Rice, who came from a poor family in Alabama, not, excuse me, a middle-class family, very successful, tight, tight family group, self-made, very young provost, wrote, learned Russian pianist. And then we had Chiron Skinner, Harvard PhD, worked for Trump. I, what am I getting at? In every one of those cases, those scholars were superior to people in their field, regardless of the race. What I'm getting at is it's clear that you don't need this. And what, why do you need this is, as in the words of Tom Sowell, it fulfills, and Shelby Steele, it fulfills some need on the part of white guilty people to virtue signal. So you don't really need it because if you look at a Roland Fryer, for example, or Glenn Lowry, some of the smartest, most brilliant people in the United States are black. And it, be, it would be just like saying, you know, we're going to make sure that there's 60 percent or we're going to make sure there's 12 percent black people in the NBA. You think that they need to be that way? No. And 
So first of all, we don't need to do this. And second, as people have pointed out, when you do do it, human nature being what it is, there's no deterrence. So when you start reading about Claudine Gay and this DEI person, or what Fannie Willis is doing, or some of the Soros-backed prosecutors who have been in scandal, it's not because they're black. It's because they understood that they were quote-unquote victims and then they were shielded from consequences of their behavior. It's very similar to the Jim Crow white South, where if you were a good old white boy and you were in an interracial situation, you didn't have to do anything. You could just rely on your skin. And this has been very detrimental. And so what I'm getting at is when you see a DEI person who plagiarizes and plagiarizes and plagiarizes or a president who plagiarizes and continually, then you know what they're doing. They're basically saying, I can do whatever I want because a bunch of guilty, elite, wealthy, white, bi-coastal people will protect me. And I'll call people racist who don't. And it's the worst thing in the world for anybody when you remove deterrence. And that's one of the, it, it, it involves tenure. Once you tenure somebody earlier in their career and you say you have lifetime employment, you know, it's, do you think they're really going to, uh, do you think they're really going to continue to be productive? I can tell you when I was at the California state system, when a person was on tenure, this is what, when you walk by their office, here's what you saw in their door. <laughs> they had pictures of them, their scholarly work. They had pictures of them at conferences. They had uh, references to their articles. And then when they got tenured, it all disappeared. They had pictures of their kids or (laughs) something, you know, sunflower posters or something. So what I'm saying is that human nature being what it is, when you remove a deterrent, that means accountability, and you can rely on innate physical uh, circumstances to alleviate any exposure, that is the, your superficial appearance, then you're just asking for a clotting gay or a DEI person doing this. Yeah. Well, if we're going to continue on then, the, Corey Bush, who is, is being investigated, she's one of our congresswomen, is being investigated by the DOJ for billing the government for her husband's sec- services as her security guard, I believe. And uh, apparently this is, he wasn't ever a security guard and she's made a lot of money for him. So I think everybody's worried about it. What, did you have thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it was very ironic, wasn't it? She was a big defund the police person. So she is... She has posed as a squad type of oppressed black woman, but she really has the values of a bicoastal liberal white elite, and she's using her office to pad her own lifestyle in the same way as Fannie Willis. Both of them have one thing in common. They pose as victims of an oppressive system to leverage their careers, and then once they achieve a position of administrative power, then they feather bed their own nest, usually by, I don't know, what's the word, <laughs> hooking up with joining opportunistic men uh, who qualify as black, as DEI people, and then at the expense of the public treasury, a public purse, and then always on the expectation that what I just said will earn the sobriquet. Racist, 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 we're exempt, you're a racist, you're a racist as if she was a a victim of segregation when she grew up as a pampered person in the civil rights movement. 
It's been 70 years since we had real true overt oppression. And so again, getting back to my earlier point, when you take away that, just if you have somebody like Tom Sowell who doesn't believe in special treatment for anybody, and he understands his job depends on productivity and cultivating his natural talents rather than playing a victim, then you get one of the world's greatest economists. And it's not hard to figure out. And when you don't do that, whoever it is, you say you're a particular victim and we're going to make allowances for you. And by the way, you only have to specialize in victimization studies, black studies, this studies, that studies. Then you're going to get what you get. It's, it's just like two plus two equals four. It doesn't equal five. Anytime you set up this DEI situation and you tell these people, you're going to police victimization and racism, they're going to find it. And then nobody's going to police the police because they're exempt. And that's the situation we created. And it's all based on one thing, money, money, money. If you have this huge university system and there's tens of billions of dollars, trillion dollars nationwide in endowments, and you don't tax the income on it, and you pour federal dollars without any accountability into these universities, and then you subsidize their inflationary tuition by putting a $2 trillion student loan subsidy in place, and then to top that off, you have 25% of the students are foreign students because you're sending billions of dollars from China and the oil-fed Middle East, then you get a lot of free-floating dollars. And Harvard can afford to pay somebody probably a quarter million dollars to what? Find racism. And if you don't find racism, you're not doing your job. And if you have to find racism by plagiarizing, it's okay because nobody's going to dare do anything. Do you think anything's going to happen to her, Sammy? No. No, I because they, set so. the, they already set the standard, didn't they? So, Claudia, everybody, I, I wrote a column and I said, Claudine Gay's resignation is not the end, it's the beginning. Because what did she present the political science with? I'm Claudine Gay. I'm a full professor of political science and I have uh, I plagiarized over half my work. It's all been proven. It's there. And any one of you who did this would be fired as a professor. And now I'm a professor. And guess what I have established at Harvard? You can't expel a student for doing a fraction of what I did anymore without expelling me. And this DEI person is going to say what? You're going to go after me when the president of Harvard was a plagiarist and now she's a professor of political science? Why are you picking on me? Go fire her. And that's what Harvard has done to itself. I, you know what's really, I don't think people have remarked about that. In the last two years, Harvard has done more to destroy its reputation than anything that's happened in the last 400 years. And Harvard has done more to destroy the reputation of higher education with help from Yale, Princeton, and Stanford than any, any possible thing their enemies could have done. They have created an entire new conversation. And it's not just coming from the right. It's coming from the donor class. It's coming from the middle-class parents of white students, white males who are straight-A students. They took the SAT. They don't have money. They don't have privilege. And they don't get into these universities on the basis of their race. And they've created an, an entire constituency 
that looks at them. And their only defense, Sammy, was this. Okay, we're going to have DEI. We're going to have racial segregation at graduation and dorms. We're going to have racial prejudice at admission. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to be so preeminent in STEM and literature and law and medicine that you'll have to go along with it because we're going to ensure American preeminence by our DEA, DEI policies. And the opposite is true, isn't it? Yeah. Where faculty all over the United States are whispering, and you can some of them don't whisper, what am I going to do with this new constituencies that are coming in without SAT scores? And they're coming out with what, without comparative graded uh, GPAs from their high school. All they're basically being admitted on is their diversity statements. What am I going to do? Inflate my grades? Water down the curriculum? Bring in new courses? Gut courses? Do you tell me what I'm going to do? I don't want to be called a racist. Tell me what I do. That's where we are. Yeah. Well, let's finish this podcast with Governor Newsom because he said, and it's probably short, I think, maybe. He said something very uh, obsequious and groveling and about uh, Joe Biden at his nadir. And he said uh, that that Newsom himself will go to the end of the earth for Biden. And he also said Biden has a record of accomplishment and is, quote, a man of character and a man of decency in a recent interview. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I'm, I'm just, I'll just tell you where I am. Like, I'm afraid this guy's going to be our president next year this time. It's scary. A hard, hard call. Who would be worse? Michelle Obama, or Gavin Newsom. Remember, everybody, Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco when all this started. And then he was lieutenant governor when it accelerated. And now he's governor for five years. He's had... 24 years to screw up the state. No one has screwed up the state more than this Bay Area entitled little rich kid who has no record of aptitude or accomplishment. Wait, even more than Arnold Schwarzenegger did? Oh, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger looks like Ronald Reagan compared to Gavin Newsom. Ronald, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger for two years was a conservative until... He started saying things like girly men, and he took on the, he, he thought he was Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm going to take on the nurses' unions and all this, and they just crushed him. And then he just said, please, please, I'll be left-wing, I'll give you all the green stuff. And then his wife, no doubt, knew what he had done earlier, and she, whatever the relationship was, it had an influence of pushing him to the left, because as soon as he left the governorship, Mirabel Dictu. Oh, my God, I found out that Arnold fathered illegitimate kids in my own bed. I didn't know that. We're going to be separated and divorced. They knew that. Mm. Part of the deal and uh, that she had over him, that he went hard left. But Gavin Newsom? Gavin Newsom was there with him. He said he was going to spend $10 billion and solve the homeless. He spent $20 billion and it got worse. He went into Target the other day. He never goes into Target. He wanted to be a man of the people. So he goes in there and he sees a person walk out with all this stuff. And he says, they just walked out with all this stuff. I'm paying. Why don't they pay? And the person didn't know who he was and said it was the governor. The governor was letting him do it? <laughs> yes. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yes. And then he, gets, he does a little YouTube to get angry and reply to this. Because <laughs> he, he actually lived outside his bubble for a second. And... He's, he doesn't know anything. When he does a debate, and you saw the debate with DeSantis, 
he comes off with his slick hair and all of his clothes and his gravelly tough voice and he prances around he has all the one-liners and the zingers memorized and he just lies his head off about how great california is and when he's told 285,000 people left he said oh well that's you know, uh, 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 and then they said, you have the highest uh, gasoline taxes. Your roads are the worst, almost the worst. You have the second or fifth highest sales tax. You have the highest income tax. Your schools are rated. For, they give them all the tax money information and all the statistics that show what a hellhole he's created. And he just like, oh, no, that's not true. And then after about 10 minutes, it's like, okay, I love my cue cards. I'm all done. I have no more zingers. The guys who prep me, now what will I do? I'm a deer in the headlights. And that's what he was the last 40 minutes with the DeSantis debate. No, that's not true. Oh, there you go. That's all he says. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm afraid that this empty suit will make it through. And in a democracy, the mainstream media can get him elected. (laughs) Here's what we have to be worried that that is a very real possibility. There are 55 million people who were not born in the United States that are living here. 27% of the population of California was not born here. These people are not electrical engineers coming with a huge business from Belgium, okay, or from the Netherlands, or from Japan. No, they're, they're mostly poor people, and they need assistance. And then we have 30% of the population lives paycheck to paycheck. About half the people have zero savings, okay? And in their view, they don't care who the person is. It's who will expand welfare, expand free stuff, and they will vote for them, absolutely. And anybody who suggests that we're $35 trillion in debt, that the interest on the national debt exceeds the defense budget, it's not sustainable, we're ancient Rome, you're a racist, you're cruel, you're heartless. That's where we are. So, yeah, they they would absolutely, they don't care who he is, they just want to know if he's going to keep doing the democratic thing and yeah. print money and give it to stuff. In California, we're running a $60 billion annual deficit. We have $300 billion, maybe more, in unfunded liabilities we owe in pensions and obligations and bonds. And there's no way to pay it back because 1% paid half the income tax. 1% out of 41 million people pay half the income tax, which is half all of the revenue. And they are bleeding at 200,000 plus every year. They're going to Texas, they're going to Tennessee, they're going to Nevada, they're going to Florida. And when they go, then everybody says, well, where's the money? Well, the money went because you taxed them and you gave them less than, I don't know what you, less than nothing. You gave them no social services. They pay, they say, I paid 13.3 income tax. I paid all this Gas tax, I pay the, you know, 11, 12% sales tax with every, all the add-ons. The housing is the most expensive in the country. You don't let pe- people build new homes. But, but look at my schools. There are 44 in the country in test scores. The 99 is the most dangerous highway on miles driven in the United States. My gosh, PG&E in Southern California, Edison have the highest kilowatts in the continental United States charges. How can this be? I'm leaving. And then what's our attitude when they're leaving? Good riddance. We want to get rid of you. 
And that's what we're in a death. We're in a doom loop, a death spiral. And, you know, another thing about California that Newsom knows but won't mention. And this is something that no one talks about. We have the largest underground black market in the country. By that, I mean almost anything you want to buy. You want to buy a rake? You want to go buy a meal off the side of the road at a kitchen, mobile kitchen? You want to get a rack of clothes? I can tell you that within a five-mile radius, I can buy anything you want with no sales tax, and the people selling it will pay no income tax on that sale. And I can tell you another thing. If in California you want labor, the person has an attitude. They will come and say, I will work in your yard, or I will saw down that tree, but I want cash, or at least partial cash. And people's, and that's because even the middle class pays 10%. And what they're basic, so what they told the wealthy people, what am I getting at? Why do these people leave? Why would I like to leave if I wasn't 70 years old in this place? Is because the people who are paying the tax cannot do that. They get a check and it has the deductions and they are in an income that the IRS and the state franchise tax board looks at. There's no write-offs for them. They're salaried. They can't, they don't want to cheat. And yet when they want a service done or when they buy a commodity, they're faced with this dilemma that the person says to them, I need cash. Oh, you, you have a leak under your house? I'll do it for $50 an hour cash. Oh, you want to pull over on the side of the road and, I don't know, have a burrito or a hamburger? Fine. Pay cash. And that's what's really destroying the economy. One of the things. Nobody says it. It's all an exempt industry. Who wants to go after that group of people? Anybody. So it's... Uh, I guess what I'm saying is that the DEI thing that you say that you're going to go after the white oppressive class and who's victimizing so many young people and so many immigrants are coming into the state and mostly from the southern border. We, you know, we had the highest number of illegal aliens for 30 years and you're, the state does not have a mentality that says, oh, you're selling on a mobile kitchen. We, we want to make, see your sales tax receipts. We want to see if you filed an income tax. Or they don't go down to a huge swap meet down the road and say, could I please look at your uh, receipt book? I want to see how many things you sold today. They don't do that. And to do that would be racist or something. And I won't mention names. I have a good friend who said, I took some deductions and I got caught. Yeah. And I said, well, you're going to be in trouble. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a fill in the blanks. And I saw him later and I said, so did you get audited? And you, yeah. Did you get fined? Nope. Why? Because I'm not like you. <laughs> yeah. And that's what happens. And it's something that we don't talk about because it seems so outrageous or racist or something to say that. But it's it's. If California wanted to get rid of its $60 billion deficit and they don't want to change the practices that drove all the high-earning taxpayers away, they could still get out of it. 
tomorrow they could say, we're taking the state franchise tax board and we're looking at self-employed income and we're going to go after people. And you know what a good thing to do with? Just go and look at all the people who bought new pickup trucks, myself included. Just go look at them and see these 80, 90, because that's what they are, 70, 80, 90, and then ask the person, where's the income that... that Paid for that. Yes, and you you will not find the income. No. You won't find the income. You won't find the income on the house. And if I have to go into a bank and get cash because somebody says to me, I'm not going to do a job unless I get cash. I won't. I'll stop there. But if I were to do that and I would talk to some of the tellers that I know and I would ask them, how many how much money do you think people come in and ask for? I would imagine because I've seen people do it. It's not five thousand. It's not six thousand. It's ten, twelve, fourteen thousand dollars in cash people take out. And I know that's true because when I go to the different banks in this area, this larger Fresno County area, I see people who come in and they have a somebody or two or three people accompanying them. And they are taking out large amounts of cash. Are they criminals? No. In the sense that they're not violent criminals or not breaking normal statutes. But what they are doing is they are running businesses or they have... Uh, homes or whatever it is, and they have people who will not work without cash. And it's 3.5% in California unemployment, but they can't find labor of people who will just say, write me a check for my service. They they can't find it. And so they're using large amounts of cash. I can see, I see it all the time. And I see, the other day I saw a guy take out, I was, you know, depositing that check and I looked over and I thought, wow, choo, 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 choo. the bill's coming. And then I looked around, there's a guy about six five that looked just like him that was with him. I thought, well, they don't seem gay. <laughs> but he was his bodyguard because they were oh, walking, wow. you know what I mean? Yeah. Because if you're carrying around that kind of money, you don't go to the bank by yourself no. unless your strategy is to be nondescript. So I don't know. I think there's a huge black market economy in California that is, for a variety of reasons, is exempt and they don't, they just tolerate it. Yeah. Well, that's the end of our podcast today. I wanted to finish up with a comment by a viewer. He wrote and he titled it Bastion of Sanity. And very quickly he said, your discussion of Greek philosophers was welcome break from the discussion of grifter Joe Biden. So thank you. And that was from T. Gambogi. I hope I got that right. And Victor, I was wondering if you had any preview of what's going on this weekend with your historic cultural. Yes, I do, because uh, I don't like talking about the contemporary. We just do that on one show mostly. So I want to remember we started with Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Then we moved to the next great writer in the Western canon, Hesiod's Works and Days. I didn't do the theogony, didn't have time. And then we moved on to Greek lyric poetry, uh, Sappho, Alcaea, Simonides. And then last week, we did the pre-Socratic Philoctetes, Anaximander, um, Heraclitus, yes, Empedocles. And this time, we're going to look at the beginnings of historiography or historians. And that would be the great triad of the 5th century who wrote from Athens, not necessarily born in Athens, but who wrote from Athens, and that would be Herodotus, Thucydides, and Xenophon. And then I hope, 
at, at the next one, we would do uh, the three great tragedians, their work, how they, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus, the nature of their work, the extant plays, how they rate with one another, and then one, three weeks from now, do Aristophanes, an old comedy, and then we would move in to the fourth and third century. And maybe we can talk about some of the, we haven't talked about oratory, so I really want to talk about the Attic, ten Attic orators and then orators that we know in the fourth century BC. And what we're doing is we're moving very slowly, but I hope comprehensively through Western literature. Then we will go into Rome, or we're going to the Hellenistic period, and then Rome, and then the so-called early Middle Ages, and then Middle Ages, Renaissance, Enlightenment. Thank you. And post-enlightenment and contemporary literature. I don't, I'm not qualified to talk about the literature of 2023 because I don't think it really exists. <laughs> and uh, I hope we can do that. We did that with military history for a year, and we finally went from the Battle of Marathon to uh, the Middle East, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So yeah. I hope to do that. And then we try to talk a little bit about farming because it's a lost uh, profession. So I want to say a few things about farming. All right. Well, thank you very much for all your wisdom today. I was especially appreciative of our your discussion and warning about our empty suit governor and our failing state. So thank you very much. I hope Californians are listening. Thank you, everybody. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're sounding off. <laughs>